Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Well, good evening and welcome to the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas. And yes, I wear my jersey one more time since we are now the Grand World Series champions. And we won last night and the city is just going crazy. But uh, I'm proud, so proud of Houston. And the one thing I, I love about this whole thing is that here it is, champs. And they had like three or four different editions of the paper this morning. Trying to find one was hard, but I got out early. And... Um, and when you go underneath to the next side of it, but the picture, it's a real large picture. It talks about following the scan, scandal-tainted first title in 2017. You know, I'll tell you what, that, that reminds me so much of stuff that happens in the past that the world will not let you forget about. And I tell you... I think sometimes we need to just go on and be the champions that we know we are and get accomplished those things that we know we could accomplish no matter what we've done in the past, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how many times we've slipped and fallen and just absolutely made the wrong choices in life and we're embarrassed, got caught, and become the champions that we are inside us. And from my point of view, Dusty Baker, uh, I'm glad he got it for him because he's such a great man. But anyway, uh, I'm proud of our, our Houston Astros and uh, looking forward to uh, what they can do and Mattress Mac and all of those <laughs> different things that uh, the, the series brought into uh, what we call this beautiful town of Houston. Just welcome tonight to Breaking the Silence. Uh, I'm kind of glad they won last night so there wasn't a way to you, you all be watching tonight. Uh, so you were freed up to be interested in watching uh, Breaking the Silence tonight. And this live show is going to be, I promise you, a money-back guarantee one tonight. As a matter of fact, the next, uh, probably through the rest of the year, we have some of the best guests lined up. And um, tonight is no exception. And I finished uh, reading for the second time the book, and you want to write this down, No Place Like Hope, and we're going to tell you all about this uh, a little bit later uh, with our first guest. But if you want to get involved, I'm looking at the Facebook page right now. My son is running uh, from Seattle, and uh, he, Curtis, just said, have a good show, Pop, and thank Curtis for the, the text. And uh, if you have a comment, you're welcome to get on uh, that Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page and comment there. Or better yet, 
Call the BBS radio station at 888-627-6008. And myself uh, and our guest, Stanley, will be glad to talk with you and bring you right on and let you have a comment, let you have a question, and uh, we'll get to it as quick as we possibly can. So 888-627-6008. Usually I have a little bit of fluff. Uh, about what I've experienced this week or a life lesson that I learned. But I tell you what, the guest tonight is going to need this whole hour plus some to be able to tell his story and the impact of his story and the importance of where he's gone, what he's learned, and the hope that is so flooding out of his body uh, with him and his wife and his beautiful child. Uh, He's kind of sick tonight, the whole family is, so give him a little bit of grace. But founder and CEO, I want to be a CEO. Why can't I be a CEO? Of this side of hope, Stanley Leone Jr. is a product of trauma who has spent nearly 30, no, three decades, over 30 years, sharing his story about a relationship and a special relationship with a teacher that literally changed and altered his entire life path. Um, although he did not choose poverty or abuse, homelessness, he's chosen the message in his life that tells one of hope and the power of what relationships can do. Um, he's an award-winning author of this book here. We're going to talk about this and how you can get a hold of this. He's also, just to let you know, he has a little bit of wisdom here because he gets 4.0s with every kind of college degree that he has. But he's a certified clinical trauma professional and approved administrative recertification professional development provider. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And he has been featured on the pre-game show of the Super Bowl and is a former national spokesperson for the U.S. Navy Accelerate Your Life campaign. He has presented to more, and I bet if you really take your shoes and socks off, it's more than just a million people. It's a lot more than a million people. And over the course of his 27 years as an unbelievable motivational speaker and presenter, and we're going to tell you all about that, too, and how you can have him come and speak to your group or your school or your uh, whatever uh, he's just a great speaker, but I want to just welcome to the program tonight, Stanley Leone Jr. Stanley, how are you tonight? I'm well, Greg, and just thank you so much for what you're doing and, and for the courage to uh, host a platform like this, and and uh, thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate you, and uh, I, I loved your book, and I remember when I, I told you I ordered it, you said, oh, I didn't do very good with that. <laughs> no, uh, Stanley, you did really good with that. Uh, it hooked me from page one and I went all the way to the last page and then turned around and read it again. And really, really, really good stuff. And I can tell I have some things I want to talk about tonight in the little sticky notes here. But um, tell me about this side of hope. What is it that you're doing with this? What are you passionate about? What gets you up in the morning besides that child of yours that I know is so precious to you and in your sight? But tell me a little bit about the side of hope. Yes, uh, and you're right. My son Weston and my wife Megan definitely uh, are—they are, get me up first thing in the morning, every morning, uh, with smiles on my face. And um, this side of hope is a is a, a pretty close third 
um, God is first, my family second, and then this side of hope is is really kind of what I'm centering my life around right now. And and it's it's really just to bring healing um, to, to people who have gone through experiences like you and I have gone through. Um, something as I've gotten older, and especially with a, with a small child right now, you know, I've come to recognize that ad- adversity really is unavoidable, um, that it, it's a part of life. And, and so I, I think I think what we need to focus on is really giving people the courage to face the adversity that is inevitably going to, to show up at some point. And I, especially when I think about my son and I, I had an epiphany the other day that um, I can't protect him from, from all the trials and the tribulations that life is, is going to bring to him. But what I can do is prepare him to handle those with, with honor and integrity and with courage. And, I, and so that's really what this side of hope is really based on is just delivering a message of, of courage um, and resilience so that when adversity comes, you're equipped to, to be able to deal with it. You know, Stanley, I, I talk in front of teachers a lot and parents, and I always tell them that I think one of the mistakes of a parent uh, I have three boys that are in their thirties now, and uh, that shows you I'm really, really old. Um, <laughs> but you know, they used to come running to me with a GI Joe uh, back in those days with an arm that came off or a Hot Wheel that had a tire off. It was my job to fix it and hand it back to him. Do you feel that our role as a parent, as you are in this young child of yours uh, raising him, is it our job to fix everything or to teach them? how to fix it themselves and learn from the experiences. What's your perspective on that role as a parent and where are we missing it right now? No, I, I think, I think you nailed it. To, um, I, I mean, I'm limited in my experience and, and I'm kind of fumbling through it. I, I think I'm, my wife says I'm doing well, but you know, every day I feel like I'm, I'm having to transition and adjust um, to the needs that Weston has as as he develops so so quickly, and I I think I think there's I don't know if it's an either or I think there are times in their lives when we when we need to fix things, and then I I also think there are times in their lives when we have to allow them the grace to be able to fix those things themselves. I'm learning that with Weston right now at 17 months, um, you, you know when he spills. Uh, hot coffee off of the table. That's something I need to fix very, very quickly uh, for him. But when he dumps his dinosaurs out of the bin onto my onto the living room floor, uh, that's something I need to help him figure out how to fix himself. So I, my assumption would be, and you would know better than me, uh, with with three thirty year olds, that as as they progress in age, that you you kind of try to do your best to figure out that balance on um, what do I need to fix at, at this point in their life and what do I need to allow them to fix? I, yeah. I think either way, you're always equipping them. Even when you're fixing things yourself, you're always equipping them on how to fix that same thing in the future just through modeling the appropriate behaviors. So I think it's always a combination and, and, and then eventually uh, they need to get to a point where they can independently uh, take care of those things. That's a that's a great answer. Um, when 
we deal and look back on what's happened to us in our past. And I want to go into your story. Uh, and you don't have you can tell as much as you want or as little as you want, but let everybody know, hey, this it's all here, and we're gonna tell everybody how to get a hold of the book. We can't change that. So we, we can't go back and erase it, we can't go back and fix it. We just have to learn how to live with it and deal with it from today moving forward. When you go out and speak to, I assume, by looking at all your background, high school, a lot of high school, college audiences, correct? Correct. How do you explain to them this is how to find hope after that you after you have endured uh, some very bad traumatic events in your life? You know that's a it's a great question and um, and and it's a tricky question I think because something that I've come to grips with is that pain is is really relevant. Um, it's contextual, right? So you can take the, the the greatest pain in someone else's life and compare that, uh, you know, metaphorically to the greatest pain in my life. And, and if you had a scale, those things would weigh the same, regardless of the incident. So for someone, Greg, they their parents may have gotten divorced, and it devastated them. And for me, you, you know, it may have been something more tragic, like a sexual assault or something like that. And that devastated me. The degree at which I experience my pain and the degree at which you experience your pain is really dependent upon the context of, of your life. So, so, so that I say that to say that being able to answer that question gets, gets tricky because you're, you're talking about, um, complete context. I mean, it's very subjective and, and unique. Here, here's what's helped me in my own life. I, I think trauma and adversity, I think for, for the most part, at the heart of it is deception. And what I've come up with is that that deception is that I'm a victim. Um, I think about the victimizers in my own life. What, what they wanted me to believe was that I was a victim, because if I'm a victim, then things are done to me. I'm, I'm powerless to prevent those things from happening, which only empowers the victimizer. Right. And I, the changing point when I met this teacher for me was when I recognized that um, that I wasn't a victim, that I wasn't powerless, that that. I always, the truth for me was that I always had the, the ability to choose my perspective, to uh, choose how I acted on the potential of my life. That's really what she taught me that, that changed me. Um, kindness uh, enabled her to connect with me, and kindness is useful for that. I mean, uh, one of the sayings in education is uh, kids don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's true. But once they know that you care, what you're teaching them really does matter. Yeah. And, and what she taught me was that I, I wasn't a victim, although I had been victimized in my life, that I could choose the way I saw those things, what I pulled from those things, how I responded to those things. And, and when, I, when I understood that and that, that how I saw things really 
had an effect on the future outcomes, that changed that changed everything for me. So I think when I'm talking with with kids specifically, I'm talking about responsibility. Look for the things you can be responsible for. You can't choose what someone does to you, but you can choose how you respond. Mm, that's good. You know, and so it, it, it seemed, it's very, at first it was very cliche to me because when you're in the midst of pain, like, um, I mean, I'm going through tragedy right now. My, my, and, and I talk about things, so I'm pretty open. My wife and I lost a pregnancy. And, um, you know, when you're in the middle of that, you, you don't want someone to tell you, oh, but Stanley, you get to choose how you see the loss of that, that pregnancy. Um, but a lot of times what you, you know, what you need isn't necessarily what you want. And what I needed to do, what I need to do during this, this tragedy and what I needed to do during the tragedies of my, my childhood was, was to really look at what happened and decide what kind of message I wanted what happened to, to speak in my life. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I've done with, with this pregnancy, you know, I, and, and it changes everything. Now I, I've moved from the loss of a, a child to uh, more gratitude and more recognition of, of how, um, how much I took my, my own son for granted. Uh, for me, he was easy. Of, of course we have a son. Um, it, but now not having lost that pregnancy, I, it's so beautiful that I can really see what a complete and absolute blessing he is. And I couldn't see that prior to the, to the tragedy. And so, you know, perspective and, and potential, I think, and responsibility it really shape everything. Well, that's, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And we, we'd spoke about that earlier and uh, uh, on the phone and, and that's a, a wonderful perspective, but a lot of people can't get there that quick. Uh, possibly the journey that you a lot of practice, on, Greg. A lot of yeah. practice <laughs> with tragedy. So yeah, and, and I understand that. Uh, although we're not, I'm still not very good with it. I just learn to either numb it or talk through it or work through it somehow. In, in your book, and we only have a minute, I'll tell you what, let's take a break first. Let's go ahead and get this first commercial break out of the way. And uh, then I want to get into your story. And you can tell as much as you want. I just don't want to break you in the middle of it. And why you felt it was important to get this out to the world. And how was it for you uh, therapeutically <laughs> to do that, this, this type of book, and to get it out so we'll do that right on the other side, 888-627-6008. And we'll be right back after this first commercial break. We're staying late for you. Be right back. You know, I'll tell you what, I have been working on this project for the last couple of years, and we keep promising you that this book was going to come out, but it is now out right now on Kindle edition, and I can't be more excited than I am about this book because it's a perfect timing for what our teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, basically everybody needs, and it's called When the Dark Clouds Come, The Roadmap to Hope. It's available right now on Amazon, on Kindle, and to be available August 16th 
uh, actually on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, uh, Books a Million, all those sites. And just a few topics that it talks about. Chapter one, you're going to find out how where you are in life and how to find out how to get where you're going. Chapter eight tells you about how to take control back of your life. Chapter 11 deals with how you're dealing with anxiety and anger. Chapter 12 goes even deeper into depression. How do you deal with that? Hurt, pain, and suicide. And there's just so many things. I personally believe that every person that's listening to me, every parent, every grandparent, every school teacher, every doctor, every library, every church, every counselor, every minister needs a copy of this book and copies to hand out to the people that are going through some of their own storms of their life. When the dark clouds come, the roadmap to hope. Get this one. I'm proud of this. And this is the one book that I wish I had when I was going through all of that abuse when I was a child, when I was a teenager. I wish I had that to be able to turn, to be able to learn how to get through my storms to hope. Roadmap to hope when the dark clouds come. Don't miss it. It's on Amazon right now. tell you what uh don't worry about ordering that book worry about ordering this one no place like hope uh by our guest tonight because this is a journey through poverty but it's more than that and uh stanley i, I want to just give you as much time as you want and i just want to go ahead and let the radio station let's not take another commercial break let's just go all the way to the end we're just going to uh i don't want to interrupt anymore uh i just want to run with this so we won't take the next commercial break uh, let's just run all the way to straight up on the hour. Uh, but Stanley, why did you decide to write the book? And then tell us briefly, in a nutshell, what that book uh, tells us, tells the world. It's, oh, um, you asked some great questions. You know, I think why I wrote that book really for two reasons the, the I'll give you the the less significant reason first was I started speaking as a 17 year old kid and I, I quickly realized that some of my recollections of, of those past events um, would change slightly um, when I was speaking I would remember them differently and in it um, 
it bothered me because uh, because for me everything is about being authentic and and really transparent. That's I, I'm not a great speaker uh, by any means, but I'm a very mm-hmm. honest one, and um, and I think that's been that's been the strength that that God has given me um, as a speaker, and so I really wanted to protect that. Um, and so I, I thought, well, I'll go to the sources of, of the other people who were there so that they can um, really confirm um, or, or disconfirm some of the, the memories that I had. And um, the, the main reason that I wrote the book was because I had questions about myself, Greg. And I know I know from reading your book that that, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. I, you know, my father um, was a monster. Uh, there, there's no other way to to label him. He he was a monster, and and from as early as I can remember, um, my mom would tell me, "You're you're just like your dad. You got the devil in your blood. Um, you know, there's evil flowing through your veins." So she would say things like that as a kid when when I was in trouble, and and not bashing my mom by any means. She had her own set of trauma that. And who knows if, if I'd have lived her life, I, I may not have done as well as she's done. I don't know. Um, but I do know that, that for me, those incidents were hurtful. And so they really, I, I, I was really um, scared that I was my dad. Um, I had a lot of behavioral tendencies, very similar to him, uh, quick anger, very violent, uh, I was an alcoholic, um, could be very abusive. Um, so I, I just saw all of these things that I that I despised in my father, in myself as a as a young kid. And so at 27, uh, when I started getting my life together and and it began to fall apart again um, at, at 27, I, I decided I'm going to get these answers these questions answered. And, uh, and so that took me on just this fascinating journey, um, all over the country. And and I did get the answers I was looking for. Um, so that, those were the two reasons I wrote it. When, when you tell the story, uh, and you mentioned that your father was obviously the, the monster or uh, the, the abuser, the perpetrator, uh, in all of majority of your trauma, and there were some other people involved too, but he mm-hmm. primarily. And the child doesn't have a person to look up to. There's a there's a line in your book that I always try to find a couple of quotes. It's like, whoa, that one that one laid me out. And it's in chapter four where you says, as an adult, I'm grateful for those small things. But I can't help wonder how much more impactful it is if kids have people rather than things to cling on to. Mm-hmm. What's it like to be a child and not have a person at that young age to hang on to? I uh, took another great question. And I want I do want you to know too, I, I do still get very emotional and I'm, and I'm getting my PhD in psychology. Uh, I've had lots of psychologists tell me I'm not fully healed uh, because I get emotional. But I, I do want you to know that everything is so much more emotional than it's ever been be- because of my son. Yeah. 
And so when you ask that question, I think, what if he didn't have me and his mother to cling to? Um, and, you know, I had, I had books and um, I, I even had, I, I would say I had my siblings to an extent, but we were all very distant uh, from one another, trying to deal with our own trauma. My older brother was five years older than me and, and he was gone most of, most of my childhood. Um, and so I was the big brother. I was too insecure for all the other younger siblings to, to cling to. So I, I pushed them away in a very protective way. Um, I was very protective, but I was very distant as well. And so for me, it, it came down to books is, um, is what I clung to in regards to my immediate relationships. I've done some research on uh, because I did watch your Bruce Perry episode and 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 um, saw that positive connections and relationships act as a buffer against adverse childhood experiences and and I thought well goodness with with the number of things I went through there must have been some relationships because I'm I'm in a pretty healthy place now as an adult and and I think. Um, I mean, what comes to mind is that it, it was teachers, even from that age. So at home, I was clinging to to books. That was really an escape route um, for me. Books and athleticism. Um, so competition became everything. But but in school, it was uh, a teacher named Miss Purcell, who's never heard me mention her name, but um, she was so kind to me and gracious. I used to get detention, so. I could see her because she was the detention teacher. And I had Miss Baccarosa, who was my homeroom teacher, another teacher I never told how much she meant to me, but she was incredibly kind and compassionate. Miss Ross, my elementary principal, Miss Pratt, my vice principal in elementary, um, who loved me even though I was a, a terror. And then Sandra Stevens in seventh grade. And I can go on and on and on with these teachers who I can re recall. And so I think I think even though at home when I was clinging to these things at, at this point in my life, I recognized that in the background, I had all of these teachers that that I wasn't ready to receive, but were still all the same, still speaking into my life, speaking love and compassion and value um, that I that I believe really had uh, laid the groundwork for buffering me against the traumatic experiences that I uh, that I've experienced. And probably that you weren't even aware of at the time. No. They were your guardian angels right in front of you. But if, if somebody would have said, hey, what do you think of Miss Purcell? You may have not said, oh, well, you know, but now you look back and you remember their names. You just popped them off like, and I can do the same thing. Mrs. Kincaid, Mrs. Bass, I can go right on down through the list of every grade that I was at, but I couldn't tell you where I parked my car tonight. <laughs> I don't know what floor I'm on. Uh, so that's amazing how our minds really do depend on them. And the work that you do now and speaking to the people that you do, uh, and I do, and Joe and Darty and, and everybody that, that we are affiliated with, it's important to let those teachers know, hey, you guys are the champions. You're the ones that's making such a difference in kids' lives even though sometimes they never see it for years. Or, or ever. And, 
And yeah. you're right, it's amazing how it works. It's But all the neuroscience, what I love about it right now is it's it tells us how it works. So Ms. Purcell, I wasn't at a cognitive level where I could process the impact she was having on me, but my biology is primitive. My, my biology was creating, you know, neural connections between um, female authority figures and kindness and compassion and, and wiring that into my brain at a biological level. And so that that's the beautiful thing about education is um, it, it doesn't really matter how the kids are responding to you. I mean, in, in the long run, uh, because you're having an impact on them, whether positive or negative is, is really up to you. You're having an impact whether they want you to or not. They can't stop it. It's happening to them. That's huge. And so, and so you're in a great a great position like the teachers in my life were to really have the fruit of what you sowed um, manifest in unbelievable quantities later on down the road. And, you know, and I think education is a, is a profession of faith. You have to have faith in the potential of these children, but you also have to have faith in the potential of the impact that you're making on them. Yeah. And so, you know, more times than not, like Ms. Purcell, Ms. Baccarosa, Sanja Stevens, those teachers, um, will probably, if they're still around, will will probably never know the impact they had. But but I've got a son and a daughter. I mean, a son and a wife who um, will live completely different lives because they loved me when I when I couldn't even comprehend that they were loving me. Wow! Now you do mention a teacher's name in here. Uh, I don't believe it was the one of the ones that you mentioned, right? No, no, sir. And, and the um, impact of that teacher, and who was that teacher? That was Monda Simmons. That was yes. <laughs> oh, you got a picture that, of it. That, that was this lady right here. Amazing. She, she became my uh, like a mother, my surrogate mother. Um, took me in into into her life and and invited me in as a son of heart and. Um, um, you, you know, it's, she's been, she's been everything to me. She's, she's never left me even when, when I felt like I, I should have been left. Um, and what grade were you in when you ran across her for the first time? I was a senior in high school. Um, I was 17. I was just, I was released from jail six weeks prior to meeting her. I was uh, convicted with a felony. Um, an assault and battery it got into some trouble with, uh, with with some other people, and um, it was really kind of just. Uh, I, I think at that point in my life, it was a back against the wall moment for me. And I've had a handful of those where it's like, okay, Stanley, you're either going to be your father or you're not. But like, you have to decide right now. Like there's no more foot in this world, foot in that world. You know, you have to choose um, because my father's family were all felons and, and getting a felony was almost like, like like a graduation degree. You know, you 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 made it. Yeah. And I didn't want that. And I met her and and um, and she was just so 
so different. It was at South Houston High School, and um, she was happy. And I mean, not happy. She was joyful. Um, there was a deepness to to the joy that she had. Uh, I mean, even when she felt bad, you could feel the joy from her. And and I just knew I wanted that. And um, so I, I tested her for about six weeks and, you know, pushed her buttons to see how she'd react. And she never wavered. She was who she said she was. And and, um, and I asked her if I could meet her in, in her class in the morning in, her, in the office. Uh, after six weeks, she said yes. And that was a changing point. I, I said, um, I said, I want my life to look like yours because uh, because I, I hate mine. I said, but I don't know how to be different. Um, I said, so I need you to make me a list and just tell me A, B, C, and D, what I need to do to make my life look like yours. And I said, I promise, miss, no questions asked. I'll work hard. I'll do whatever you put on that list, but please, like, just please just tell me, tell me what to do. And uh, it was very emotional. Um, probably the first time I'd ever been vulnerable in my life. And she made me a list, Greg. And it was like, I, I thought she was kind of blowing me off. It was simple stuff. Show up to class early, sit in the front of class, pull your pants up, tuck your shirt in, you know, ask three questions every class period, come in for tutoring. Um, and so I did those things. And, and at the end of uh, my semester with her, I got my report card back and I had straight A's on, on my report card. And that that was important because I was in jail my junior year. I, I didn't get smarter over six months. Um, so what that proved to me was that the behaviors that, that she was telling me I could control actually did matter when it came to the outcomes I was seeing in my life. And I think if you want to change a kid, that's what you have to show them, that these behaviors are directly linked to the outcomes that you're getting. So you want different that is outcomes. So powerful. That's so yeah. powerful. If I, if I remember right, you, I'm looking, that's why I like to read through the book twice, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your rules of life, your what was taught to you was by your father. And these are the rules that you learned from him. Rule number one, you hurt people or they hurt you. There's no in between. Rule number two that you learned from your father, we're not built for relationships because the closer you get to people, the more power you give them to hurt you. That's what you learned from the head of the household. Yeah. And to come and listen to this gentle, joyous teacher that just opened her heart to you, gave you a whole list of different rules to live by. That had to be life-changing for you because you hadn't lived that way. That's why you were in jail. That's why you were dealing with people the way you dealt with them, right? That's exactly right. And she, she became an option I didn't know was available. Wow. You, you know, like in, in my life, people were manipulative and violent and cruel and relationships were just the way, you know, women were seen as possessions. 
my father owned my mother. And so they were a way for the, for the predator to dominate the victim. So relationships weren't, weren't safe. But I remember thinking, well, she, and it was adults in my life. I do want to be clear on that too. It, it wasn't kids who hurt me. It was adults who hurt me. And, and the adults who were closest to me were the ones who hurt me the worst. But this lady was an adult and she was kind and compassionate and generous and concerned with the value that I added to the world. And I started thinking, well, if she's like that, then maybe maybe there are other adults like that. And you know what? Maybe maybe I can be like that. And, and so it was a very steady, hesitant, reluctant um, transition for me. But it really began with her living out of who she was in, in such a, a radically different way. I say radically different, but she would say there's nothing. She's as ordinary as they come. She said, I just let, I let love and compassion lead everything I did. But that was enough. Um, it, it was enough to, to convince me that maybe the world was different than what I'd been taught it was, you know. When you've been brought up with parents and a father that was as domineering and violent and abusive and almost killed your mother three times and and what you've seen and heard from a bedroom and then other members of your family that almost did some terrible things to you. Uh, thank goodness your mother was there at the right time to get you out of those situations or whatever, some of those. How hard was it at the age to still trust people? And how big of an issue is trust with you now? And do you still find yourself sometimes slipping back into that, hey, wait, you're getting too close to me and you push people away? Oh, okay. Uh, um, I hit a nerve. You did, yeah. And I think that's. Um, <laughs> you know, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that so that these things, at least in my experience, they they don't ever go away. No. I, and um, and I don't know if you want them to. I I think they're I think they're there to to teach us and and mold us. You know, I send my son to daycare and he comes home sick every day, and so I think well. What's the alternative? Well, to not send him to daycare. Well, then I prevent him from being exposed to the traumas and um, the adversities that he needs to be exposed to now so that his immune system can make him strong as an adult man, right? And so I think our adversities kind of function in the same way as an immune system. They, they, they were exposed to those things for the purpose of becoming um, fully who we are um, in strength and courage and resilience and, and all these admirable qualities that, that you only get through, through adversity. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to go away. I, I wouldn't want them to, um, I wouldn't want to go through them um, Again, but I just I lost my my train of thought. Can you tell me your question again? <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, trust is a huge issue for me. Okay, I, uh, I think I lost that train of to thought. To be able purpose, to, right? to trust, because you said earlier in your earlier childhood, there was nobody as an adult 
that you trusted uh, or could trust. And unless there was these teachers that you mentioned and then specifically Mrs. Simmons, but does that come back to you sometimes, even in, and without getting too personal, do you have that issue sometimes, or maybe in the early days of your marriage, which is like, how can you love someone like me? And how can you fully trust somebody with your heart when it's been broken so many times? Yeah, I think yeah. subconsciously I was avoiding that. that. Trust is still my biggest issue. That's the the biggest, um, the, the big, yeah, I mean, and, and I think, I think when you're damaged in, in the, you know, the, in certain ways, I could say in the ways we were damaged, I could say, um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, context is everything. I think when you're damaged in certain ways and, trust is broken and you don't develop the attachments that you need um, as a child. And, and I think when the authority figures in your life are the, are the source of the, the pain and the violence, it, it makes it makes it difficult to, to trust that others won't hurt you. But that's one side of the coin. I think for me, it's also, you know, the, the insecurities um, that, they're still there. I mean, cognitively, logically, I, I know that, um, that I'm a great guy and, and I'm loving and caring and, and, and I take care of my family and, and, and that I live in service. I, I know all those things logically, but emotionally, I, you know, I still fear that, that maybe I'm not as good as people think I am. Maybe mm -hmm. if people are around me long enough, they'll figure that out. And then they won't want anything to do with me. Um, and so, yeah, trust is, I, I would say I have, um, as far as male relationships in my life, or any relationships, I probably have, uh, I would say one, um, a college buddy of mine, um, who I've stayed in touch with consistently, I have another who stayed in touch consistently with me um, and I'm grateful for him. And then I have a new one, Joe Hendershot, who has just come into my life and, and has come in, in, in a very deep way, very quickly, which is unusual uh, for me. So, so I've got probably three friendships that I've allowed to, um, to be on the inside even my teacher, uh, Manda, who is my mother, and her, and her husband, Bob, who has become a dad to me, um, there are times when I pull away from them, and, and thank God they're consistent, and they stay on me because they love me. I mean, they get nothing out of the relationship with me other than the relationship with me, and, and they have never gone away. So I would say I've got five people. Um, that I trust completely wholeheartedly. And, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not, Greg. It's, I wish there were more. Well, yeah, but at least you have that many. I mean, that, that's awesome that, that, that you do. And they're all good quality people. And I know you can trust Joe. Uh, I know him personally too. And he's the reason we, we connected. I, just a great man, him and Darty. Um, when, as we turn the corner, we're, we're getting on the last lap. Uh, I want to make sure we get to this. Have you noticed in the millions, and I say millions, of people that you've spoken to for the past 
25, 30 years or more, that your message is shifting, that it's not about all the events and things of the trauma, that it's, hey, this is how I got through bad things in my life. And how, tell me how maturity, having a, a loving wife and a beautiful family like you do and a wonderful son, how has that shifted you into the new chapter in your life of this is what you want the world to know about you and how to make it now through these eyes? Has it changed at all? It's, it's completely changed. Um, and, and great question. I'm, I'm so thankful you asked. I, I, I feel fortunate. I grew up in education. I, I, I joined a company called the Flippin' Group when I was 17. And Flip Flippin' be, became a, just a mentor and a father figure. His wife, Susan, uh, became kind of an idol. I mean, I just admired her. And um, they kind of brought me through the world of education um, with them together. And so I was able to grow up and transition and evolve in this world of, of education, which I think is uh, where all, all the best learning happens. And so when I started speaking, it was completely selfish. And I, I really had no thought about anyone else. I, I was an angry and hurt kid who, who needed to be validated. I mm. needed to be affirmed. And, and when I spoke the first time, people um, showered me with hugs and kisses and told me that I was a wonderful kid. They told me all these things I never heard. And, and I became addicted to that. And I'd, I'd say that really drove me, um, compelled me to continue speaking at, at such an early age. Um, even with Flip and Susan, I was desperate for their approval. And, and so I just wanted to make Flip happy. And, and so I would speak for his approval, but never really to, to help heal people or to serve others. It, it was always to meet this need that I had. And that went on till I was probably um, 23, 24. And I'd spoken long enough and began to develop enough success in my life that um, I started looking beyond myself and seeing the the environment around me. And I was in a maximum security detention center in Pendleton, Indiana with 200 inmates. Um, and this one kid approached me at the end of the speech and, and he's got tears in his eyes, he's huge. And, and he says to me, yeah, good for you. Like you made it, I'm glad for you, good for you. But what about me? He's like, your story gonna give me a shot? Like, do I still have a chance? And I remember I had to look at this kid and because and, authenticity, authenticity is everything. And I said, no, no, man, your life's done. Like you made your choice and you have to live with the consequences now. He was in there for two counts of murder. He'd, he'd never get out. Um, so I, that was life shaking earth-shaking for me. I, I remember crying in my car afterward in the dirt roads of Indiana and uh, and just saying, what was the point? They gave me a standing ovation, Greg. But I thought, so what? You know, I didn't do anything for that kid. 
I, I entertained them and fed my ego for an hour and, and, mm. um, and in the end it didn't matter. And, and so there was kind of a shift where it really came, it, it began to evolve into um, how can I serve others rather than how can I impress them? And, and then of course that, that has um, continued and especially now with my, my wife and, and my son, um, you know, the entire message is about, I'm, I'm, I'm a servant, I'm, I'm a vehicle. I, I like to say that your story is a vehicle for the message. And, and I am that story. And I am the vehicle that God has chosen to deliver this message in and nothing else. Um, Joe made one of the best statements I've ever heard. I don't care if you remember my name after a speech, but you better remember the stories because the kids that we're trying to heal are what matters. And, and when Joe said that to me, I, I, I think, you know, that really sums up, I think, what the point of me speaking at this point in my life is. It's like it's to, it's to bring healing. The world is hurting more than ever. It's divided. It's, it's adversarial at every point. And, and so you need voices of, of hope um, to help bring the healing about. I, th I think that's really what my message has, has so, evolved so into. The, the main source and purpose of your message now isn't, hey, look at all the stuff I went through. It's no. look at where it got me today, this place called hope that it got you here. And that's where you want to take the people every time you speak now, right? To hope. Absolutely. You know, it comes down to, look, I was abused and, um, and, and I can love, I have the capacity to love no. my son in, in a compassionate and kind way. You know, um, I saw my mother almost killed by my father, but, but look, my wife will never lock herself in the closet or hide under the bed. Um, because I'm in her life now. And so it's it's really saying that taking the, these, whatever your uh, adverse experiences are, really being able to say, look, regardless of what you've been through, you're responsible for the life that, that you live. You're responsible for what it looks like. And that's the beautiful thing about humans is that we control potential. We're, we're the, you know, I heard a psychologist talk about this. We're the only species on the planet that can actually make potential real. We, wow. we can make it real. And, and so the potential for me to be a great loving husband and father, a successful uh, contributing citizen is, is up to me to make real. But it's always potential no matter what I go through. And for other people to be impacted by that hope that you project is better than any standing ovation that you ever get, even though you still may get them. But when it changes lives, it don't just move them from their butts to their feet. It moves them from their feet to a place that they need to get to. And that's having that destination of hope in their life and the motivation. I have, um, Lee Colburn on Facebook here. She says, I have such admiration for Stanley's intentionality. Ooh, I didn't know that was a word. <laughs> authenticity. 
compassion, and his dedication to being the best person that he can be. Thank you for having Stanley on your show so other people can connect with his story. And she just wanted to applaud you and, and say, hey, she she not only knows your story, but she appreciates your authenticity and your heart. And in the last minute or two, Stanley, what and how important is that authenticity in your life right now? I, well, thank you, Lee. Uh, Lee. Lee is one of uh, quickly also becoming a very dear, uh, dear people. friend. She showed up uh, when I needed her to. It, I think for me, Greg, authenticity is everything. It's, you know, what you see is what you get. I think that's the best way to live your life. Um, you know, and and here's what I found, and I know you got to close, so I guess this would be as good as anything for me. Okay. I've, I've measured success in different ways. I've, 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 I've had more money than I knew what to do with when I was young. I had, was on television and, and did all these things that I thought meant I was successful. And, and at 27, I uh, found myself on my roof, uh, ready to jump off, going through a divorce um, and really felt just completely empty, got re-diagnosed with bipolar disorder, suffering from PTSD um, and all this other stuff. At 27, I thought, well, how does that happen? I, I'm successful. So I'm at this point in my life and, and uh, don't make near as much money as I used to and, and have absolutely no fame, uh, which I'm very pleased with. I've been a stay-at-home dad for the last year and a half, and and uh, it has been the joy of my life. Um, but I th I feel more successful than I've I've ever been, and and so what I've concluded is that, you know, all of us we have this version of ourselves that we show to the world, and and then and then we have who we really are yeah. inside, and I I think for me I've I've tried to close that gap. I've, I've tried to be who I am in private, um, have that match who I am in public. And, and I'm not perfect with it by any means, but what I've noticed is that the closer that gap has gotten, the more in alignment who I am in private and public is with one another, the more joy and contentment I experience in my life. And, and it seems like the outside of my life really reflects the joy and contentment. So I, I can't really think of anything more successful than, than that. That's great. Tell you what, they're telling me we have to go. Tell you what, Stanley, thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing your story. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, I hope that you can make the five people that you trust into six uh, in our relationship that we can end Absolutely. up having that type of friendship. Uh, I appreciate your, you sharing your story tonight. And thank you for your genuineness and your authenticity. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate you. As we close every show each week, we have to do this really quick. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what Stanley's gone through, no matter what I've gone through, no matter what you're going through right now, I want to let you know there is a place called hope. And you can find it. Get this book. Buy it. Read it. Study it. Underline it. Outline it. Circle it because you will be touched by it. And if you want to reach out to Stanley, please reach out to him at No Place Like Hope. And this side of hope is the place to get a hold of him. This side of hope, Stanley Leone. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. God bless you. Have an awesome week. 
and never forget that there's hope for you. God bless. Good night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.